If you have Bibles with you, I invite you to please sta- turn stand. Yeah, right. Turn to John six. We're going to be in verses sixty to seventy-one this morning. And for our scripture reading, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of me reading it, I'm going to in- invite the the person who raises his hand every Wednesday and uh, takes the the corner on reading scripture at youth group. And I'm going to invite Donovan Varney to come up. He's going to read scripture for us this morning. John 6, 60 to 71. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the back, um, which looks like this one that Donovan's holding. A nice paperback, ESV. If you don't actually have one at all, please keep it. It's our gift to you. John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, They said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve was going to betray him. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Good job. If you could bring that to the back, that'd be great. All right. Well, that text goes out on a high note, huh? (laughs) And Judas will betray him. Let's pray before I say anything uh, silly like that again. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word, and may that reading uh, just not go in void, that you spoke to our hearts through it, and as as I just said, Lord, may my words not be my words this morning, may you speak through me, that the message would be clear and speak to all of us, that we would see how good and glorious you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible, And we're at the end of chapter 6, which was a super long chapter. I mean, 71 verses long, and it was just jam-packed with all kinds of stuff. And chapter 6 continues that trend that we saw throughout the whole book of the... Oh, yeah. Kids, please be dismissed. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not the lead guy. I don't remember this stuff. Cut that from the video. Okay. (laughs) Let the kids go and then I'll continue. All right. So chapter 6, we see the trend that we've seen throughout the first five chapters of the book that Jesus is speaking to people. And he's speaking in terms of the spiritual, in terms of what's going to happen But people aren't grasping it. They can't see the big picture. They're not seeing the truth in what he's saying. They're stuck on the earthly things. And here at the end of the chapter, we see the culmination of all that's been going on. 
I mean, we saw 5,000 men and their families fed from a few loaves and a couple fish. We saw Jesus walk on water. We've heard Jesus tell the crowd over and over and over again, don't seek the signs. Don't seek just the food itself, but seek the giver of those things. Seek the creator. Seek me, the true bread of life. What he has to offer is far better than what they're looking for. And we saw Jesus use the bread that he fed them, and we saw Jesus use the bread that was given to Israel in the time of Moses as an illustration to say, this bread was given, but I'm the better bread. I am the bread of life. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then last week, we saw Jesus take this bread illustration even further when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And these words that Jesus was speaking, he was speaking them in the synagogue in Capernaum, and, and it caused grumbling, we saw. It caused dispute among the Jews. They, as others that we've seen throughout this book, cannot get past the physical. They cannot get past that. When Jesus is flesh and blood, he's not talking literal, like just go and eat him and stick him on a pole and roast him over a fire. That's not what he's talking about. They're missing that. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood, is to to believe in him, to trust in him, that he is the way to eternal life. That the flesh and the blood points to his flesh and blood that would be sacrificed on the cross. And these statements are what bring us, bring us to where we're at closing the chapter this morning. And what I hope we see is that when confronted with tough truths of the gospel, that we're called to also respond to those truths. When, when we're confronted with the difficult truths of the gospel, there's really two responses that we see. Rejection. Or acceptance of it. When Jesus speaks truth, he speaks the words of eternal life. How will we respond when confronted with the truth that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, as we just sang? How will we respond to the truth that our works, our deeds, and anything apart from feeding on the flesh and blood of Christ, that is anything outside of faith and trust in him, cannot save us. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And as we do that, we'll do so under the three headings of repulsion at the truth of the gospel, revelation of the truth of the gospel, and responses to the truth of the gospel. We'll start with repulsion. Let's get repulsion out of the way. Verse 60. John says, Many of his disciples heard it, And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The first thing to note here is that we see a change from who John is talking about when they're responding to Jesus' teaching. Up until then, we saw Jesus' teaching and it said the the Jews were grumbling. 
the Jews were disputing over what Jesus was saying. But now we see it change. The people, his very disciples, are the ones troubled by his teaching. And when we think of the word disciple, we think of typically someone who's, who's walking in faith with Christ, looking to him, learning from him. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're all in. To be a disciple at the bare bones level of what a disciple means is to be a learner, to be a student. These people were, they didn't, they didn't get it. They were, they were learning, they were being students, they were listening to what he taught, but it didn't mean they were necessarily believers. It doesn't mean they've been redeemed by the grace of God. It means you're a student. If I sat in a class on something like, I don't know, Scientology, I would technically be a disciple of the teacher of that class, whether I was bought into it or not. So when we look at disciple, that's what we're, we're looking at. And I just think that's an important distinction to realize when we're looking at the Scripture. They were followers of Jesus. They listened to what he taught. They looked at the signs. They ate the food. But when it came to Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and in order to have life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, these disciples respond with, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And at first read, I think we look at this and saying it's a hard saying, and we just think, what they're saying is, this is difficult to understand. This is really confusing. That's what we would think. Like, they're kind of like, flesh? Blood? What? (laughs) But that's not what they're saying. The word used is actually skleros, which means harsh, rough, or offensive. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily confused by it, though they are, but it means they're actually taking offense to what Jesus is saying when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're actually taking that as something where they're like, no way, I, I, am not, I am not listening to this. They're offended by it. They don't like it because they're only seeing the physical. They can't get past that. Their, their eyes and their, their hearts, they're not open to it. So they hear Jesus teach and they say, this offends me. I'm done listening. They're repulsed by the truth that Jesus is speaking. In verse 61, it says that they are grumbling about it. They're grumbling. Now, if someone's just confused about something, there might be discussion, some, some Q&A, a little, I don't have a clue what you're saying. Explain it to me again. Use a different term. Maybe not flesh and blood. Try it again. Like, there might be some of that. But they're grumbling. Grumbling shows that you're not striving to understand. You're just angry about it. You're just complaining about it. You're grumbling. You're in protest of it. You don't like it. So you murmur among yourself. Can you believe him? But there's not this seeking to help me understand. I don't get it. Help me understand. There's not that. And it's really a heart issue, isn't it? When we get down to the bottom of it, a hard heart versus a soft heart. A heart that is not open to learning or listening versus a heart that's open to truths that may seem difficult to our preconceived notions. 
as God reveals more about himself to us through his word, we're not always going to get it right away. Sometimes it's going to be a little tough to understand. Actually, I think probably more times than not. When we first, we're reading the Bible, we're seeing something, and we flip the page and then we're like, wait, hold on. What? There's, there's those moments where we're like, we don't necessarily get it. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes the Spirit of God working in our souls. And it takes an eagerness and a desire to want to understand on our part. That's something we're not seeing. They heard Jesus' words, but they're, they were like, this just offends me, and I don't, want, I don't want to listen to it anymore. They think they know all there is to know, and Jesus is telling them something else, and they're like, this offends me. I don't want to know it. I've probably used this illustration before, but I'll use it again because I like it and I think it works. It just makes sense. In the book Crazy Love, Francis Chan says, If my mind is the size of a soda can and God is the size of all the oceans, it would be stupid for me to say he is only the small amount of water I can scoop into my little can. It's so true. But we do that all the time. We think, ah, now I've got it. Now I know all there is to know. And then you realize, oh no, there's the Indian Ocean and the Arctic Ocean. I have like a little bit of the Atlantic Ocean. There's all these different things. It takes time. It takes discussion. It takes learning and praying, asking God to open our eyes to the truths that he's speaking, that we would be receptive to them. So when we read the scriptures and we hear the tough truths of the gospel, we mustn't have hearts that are repulsed and being, you know, just turned off. We need to have soft hearts, eager to learn. And hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be able to comprehend those things. There are mysteries of the gospel that we may not understand on this side of glory. And I also just want to make a note, when I'm talking about truth, tough truth that we need to work through and then eventually understand, I am just talking about the truth that comes from this book. I'm not talking about crazy, new agey, whatever business that comes from anyone on the street or some just like out there thinker. I'm talking about the word of God. We look at the truth that's in the word and we want to understand it. We want to work through it. I'm not talking about the outside stuff. That stuff we can go, well, that's not in here, so I'm done. I think that's, I mean, we should test things. We should listen to them. But if it, if it doesn't line up with this book, this is our supreme authority. We should stand in submission to its truth, not make it conform to our own. So as they're grumbling amongst themselves over, over what were already difficult truths, Jesus speaks to them in the midst of their repulsion and offers even more revelation about himself and more difficult gospel truths. Picking it up in verse 61. It says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives Life and the flesh is no hope at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
Jesus is no dummy. He knows the disciples are grumbling. They're not getting away with anything grumbling. He knows. And he knew that they didn't fully grasp the weight of what he was saying. And he knew their attitudes were not ones that wanted to learn. They had already made up their minds. But he continues pressing on in the truth. And in these verses, we see Jesus reveal three things. The first is Jesus is revealing his pre-incarnate deity to them. Jesus is revealing his pre-incarnate deity, 61 and 62. Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Do you guys take offense at, at eating flesh and drinking my blood? Well, how offended will you be when you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And this small statement has so many implications because what Jesus is telling the grumblers is that to ascend to where he was before means he was somewhere before he was on this earth. He teaches them the truth that he existed before he took on flesh. He is God and he descended to come and seek, save, seek and save lost sinners. Jesus is the word made flesh, the invisible made visible. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It's a lengthy one, but I love it. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things." whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He was before everything. He was deity before he was, took on flesh. The other implication of Jesus telling them that he's ascending to where he was before, it's telling them, I'm not going to set up my throne here right now on this earth like you want. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to come and take out the political systems and set up the throne and, and become king in that moment. The warrior who's going to come and, and take over everything and make everything right, right then and there, before their eyes, in the physical. That's what they were looking for. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ascend to where I was before. We see Jesus seclude himself earlier in this chapter intentionally because he knew they wanted to take him and make him king because of the signs that he was doing. But Jesus is uprooting all their preconceived notions about what the Messiah will look like and he's telling them this is what it will look like. And what they don't realize, and they'll be even more shocked and offended at, is that the road to his ascension inevitably means his crucifixion. It involves his humiliation. That's not what they were looking for in a Messiah. 
Isaiah 53, 3-4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. His ascension is preceded by the road to Calvary. Jesus is telling them, if you think it's a tough truth to swallow, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, then when you see what's actually going to happen, you're really going to be shocked. It's really going to rock your world. Jesus is revealing his pre-incarnate deity. Jesus is revealing the work of the Trinity. We saw uh, last week, verse 44, Jesus said the Father, he said this of the work of the Father and the Son. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And now here we are at verse 63 and it tells of the work of the Spirit in this. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In this discourse, we see the redemptive work of the triune God. The Father sends the Son. The Son does the will of the Father, speaking words of life. And the Spirit works in the hearts of the believer, giving life. The triunity of God is so evident here. And the disciples were so concerned with Jesus' words to eat his flesh and drink his blood that Jesus is trying to tell them, point them to the spiritual, almost like giving them the answer, but they just don't get it. He said, stop focusing on the flesh. Stop thinking of the things, the ideas of this world. I'm telling you, my spirit is what gives life. So you don't need to bite my arm and actually eat my flesh. It's the spirit that gives life. The spirit alone will open your eyes to the truth that I am telling you. The flesh is of no help. And it might be a little confusing, but this idea of the flesh is no help is, is actually talking more about the, the attitude of, of fleshliness or worldliness Jesus is talking about our, our human effort, our fleshly striving to attain salvation. The fleshly striving that people do in order to gain their favor with God. The outward appearance, the bragging of good works, the parading around of, uh, like, like the Pharisees, of, oh, I did, I did what, it, what it said in the law, so I'm good to go. If you haven't done it, well, you kind of stink. Jesus is talking about that. He's saying this, that flesh, those things, they're no help at all without my spirit, without seeing that salvation is through me and me alone. Our flesh, it desires something deeper. It desires something more. We crave eternal belonging, but the flesh alone will never be able to attain it. Outside the supernatural work of the Spirit, it isn't possible. The Spirit is the water that makes the seeds of the gospel sprout within us. The Father sends the Son. The Son speaks the words of life and the Spirit gives that life within us. How it works exactly? 
I don't know. But that's what I see in the pages of this book. So Jesus is revealing the work of the Trinity. The third thing that Jesus reveals in these verses is he reveals his divine authority. The Spirit gives life, and then he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's demonstrating his divine authority. If his words are spirit and his words are life, then the way to truth, the way to life is to trust and believe his words. He's saying, do you want life? Do you want to, not just, do you want to truly live? Then don't grumble at my words. Listen to me. Catch what I'm saying here, disciples. You may not understand it, but what I'm saying to you is on the same authority which my Father has. What I'm saying to you is, is of the same transforming power that my Spirit gives. My words are the words of eternal life. Cherish these words. Listen to my words. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't just be repulsed by them. So, he's telling him, I speak the words of eternal life. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 15, verse 16, he says, saying to God, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jesus wants the disciples to to cling to his words and cherish his words in, in the same affection, with the same affection that Jeremiah had for the word of God. Jesus, the truths of the gospel, Jesus' words here, they shouldn't be a burden to us, they should be a delight to our hearts. That there's no other way to life but through Christ, through his flesh, through his blood shed on the cross. Should delight us. Our flesh will fail us, but Christ will lead to life. This is good news Jesus is preaching. I mean, there's a little bad news. Jesus continues, he said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who would who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We see the Trinity again. Jesus is telling them he has the words of eternal life. He's pleading with them to hear what he's saying. But he knows. He knows that there are some who won't believe. Can you imagine? You're pleading with these people. You're telling them this truth and inside you already know. Not all are going to believe it. And Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. That's what he said earlier. And then again in verse 70, he reminds us of his sovereign authority. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And then John informs us that devil is indeed Judas, who would betray Christ. I mean, Jesus called Judas. He picked 12 guys who he was going to bring close. He picked Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus isn't the one who names Judas in our passage. It's John. 
He does it after the fact that he knows it was Judas who did it. Only after Peter witnessed it firsthand. So Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, right here in verse 70, I know I just skipped a little chunk, don't worry, we're coming back. He doesn't say, one of you is a devil, and then like looks at Judas and goes. He doesn't do that. He just says, but yet one of you is the devil. So like 12, 12 people are probably standing there going, uh, is, it, is it me? I don't know, is it me? Like, they're probably like, what does that mean? That's probably a hard saying too. Judas was there with all the other 12 for the miracles. Jesus, or Judas was there for all the teaching. Judas was there experiencing the love of Christ, fellowship with Christ firsthand. But he still rejects Christ. He still betrays him, just as Jesus said he would. Like the disciples who heard Jesus' words and leave, Judas' heart and mind was made up. This is the same tension we saw last week when Pastor Lou preached. God's sovereignty and salvation, man's responsibility. A very tough gospel truth. And can I stand here and say, I get it 100%. I understand it fully. I got this. I can't. But I can trust the words of Jesus and the testimony of Scripture that it's true. And I'm going to continue working through it and thinking about it, striving to understand it, and hoping that God will give me the wisdom to fully comprehend it. And I can know that I can rest that my salvation is ultimately in the hands of a a, a loving God and not my own. It's a tough truth. Judas betrays him, but he was called by him to be one of his closest disciples. That's a tough tension. I don't want to harp on it. We talked about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility last week. We got CDs in the back of it. We, there's sermons online. We can listen to it there. Um, otherwise, I'd just probably be repeating the exact same thing Lou said last week. So grab that. But one of the truths of the gospel is that God is absolutely sovereign in the work of salvation. Jesus' statement is clear. God calls us, and we're responsible to respond. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We'll press on. Jesus lays out this truth, again, in the midst of their grumbling, and now it's time to respond. Going back up to verse 66. I'm a little behind. Sorry, guys. All right. The little Roman numeral should say three responses to the gospel. Verse 66. After many of his disciples... After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The first response, rejection. It started off a little repulsed, kind of like, I'm not listening. Almost like they're like, la, 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 I'm not listening. But now it turns into rejection. I'm out of here. 
Repulsion's like, I'm going to look away from the movie. Rejection is, I'm walking out of the movie. Like that kind of thing. Jesus lays out plainly the way to eternal life is through him and him alone. You must believe his words. That's what he's telling them. Salvation is through his work alone. The work that he descended from heaven's heights to accomplish. And the response is, nah. Nah. If you're telling me, Jesus, that salvation, that eternal life is by your words alone, through the work of the Spirit, and it's all through you, and that's all you're offering, no. I'm, we, want, we want the signs. We want the miracles. We want, we want the, the, the food. I don't want to adhere to what you're telling me. I don't want to follow what you're saying. I don't like it. We really liked the food. Let's go back to that. Pastor John MacArthur says, they were thrill seekers, not truth seekers. They were thrill seekers, not truth seekers. They wanted the signs. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the food. But they could not stomach the words that came from the very bread of life himself. They didn't like it. So they left. They walked away from repulsed to rejection. They did not want to submit to the truth of God's word, so they leave. F.F. Bruce puts it succinctly. He says, what they wanted, he would not give, but what he offered, they would not receive. How many of us can relate to that? We want the truth of God, but we want it on our terms, not his. The parts we don't like, we just want to dismiss. We say, God, show me your truth, show me your ways. And when he does, we're like, well, never mind. I didn't forget. scratch the question from the record. I never asked. I don't want to know. Matt Chandler says, if you're not confident in the authority of the scriptures, you'll be a slave to what sounds right. Think about that. We need to be teachable. We need to be moldable. He is the potter. We're all the clay. We don't get to switch roles. Who are we to tell the potter how it's supposed to be done? Will we reject the words of truth and, and sim, truth in life simply because we don't understand them? Because they're difficult. Will we walk away because we don't want to submit to a sovereign God? Rather, we want to be our own gods. Now, of course, there are two sides to every coin. So far, we have looked a lot at the negative response to the truth of the gospel. Repulsion, rejection. But there's the other side. There's the realization that what Jesus said is indeed trustworthy and true. So let's get some good news going here. Let's some encourage, encouraging responses. Let's, like George Costanza, leave on a high note this morning. You know I had to slip Seinfeld in there. Going strong. I think I got three in a row now with sermons in Seinfeld. All right. So we have rejection. We have reception. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this. This is a breath of fresh air. 
Because almost entirely through this whole chapter, we see Jesus teach and people grumble. Jesus plead and he's rejected. No one gets it. But now Jesus turns to the 12, his closest disciples, and he said, do you want to go away as well? We got Peter, wonderful Peter, spokesperson for the 12. He speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The pennies have dropped for Peter. He gets it. He's been sitting under the same teaching as everyone else. He's seen the same signs. He's heard Jesus say the same thing. But he gets it. He says, you, you're the true possessor of the words of eternal life. We believe in you. We believe in those words. No one else compares. No one else can do what you're doing. No one else is saying what you're saying. With all authority you speak. So to who else can we go? If we leave, where are we going to go? You are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. Holy means set apart. Jesus is set apart from the rest. He's the only one set apart in this way. He's the Holy One. No one else gets that title. In the Old Testament, we see God called the Holy One of Israel. But Jesus is the Holy One of God. That's what Peter ascribes to him. God's only begotten Son, fully God, fully man, set apart to serve and do the will of the Father. Set apart to proclaim the words of eternal life. To seek and save lost sinners. Set apart for the purpose of giving his life as a ransom for many. Breaking his flesh, spilling his blood, that we may partake of that sacrifice by believing and trusting in that work that he did on the cross. Do we get it? Where else can we go? There are millions of things that tell us we can find joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. There's millions of things that could probably make us feel good inside, at least for a little while. For some, it's greed. For some, it's pleasure. For some, it's lust. For some, it's gluttony. For some, it's power. And within all these categories, we'll find some place to run that isn't Christ. But then what happens? We're left empty. We're left going, all right, well, this didn't work, so maybe I'll, I'll go over here. Yeah. And then when that doesn't work, maybe I'll go over here. But in Christ, we find our joy and satisfaction knowing we are loved and cared for. In Christ, there is hope because he has the words of eternal life. In Christ, we, found, we can find power in admitting weakness and resting in his strength. I'm sure you guys have heard people say, Christ is a crutch. Christianity is a crutch. Yeah, because we need one. (laughs) If we have a broken, like, have you seen someone try to walk on a broken leg? Like, without a crutch? It's like, oh, no, I'm good. 
ah, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need a crutch, really. And it's just painful. Like, you watch it, and it's, it's painful. You can't do it. The pain of a fully broken bone is excruciating. The crutch takes the weight off. We need Christ because we are broken. We need the words of eternal life. We need something firm, someone firm that we can hold on to that tells us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We need Christ to help support us and help us walk. And admitting that, admitting that we're broken and we need someone else is what makes it so hard for for many people to, to heed Jesus' words. Makes it very hard for people to accept the fact that God's sovereign over all. Admitting that we don't have it under control, <laughs> that can be tough. We don't want to do that. We're not raised to do that. But we need to see that the flesh is no help at all. Our deeds aren't sufficient. Only Christ and his work is. To whom shall we go? Where will you go this morning? Where, were you, where will you look Will you seek refuge in the faulty systems of this world where you go chasing the latest sign, wonder, and miracle? Will you just go chasing the thing that sounds right and feels good? Or will you cling to Christ? Where will you turn? Have you heard the call but you've been resisting. You've been kind of repulsed saying, ah, this is hard, I don't want to listen. Let the words of eternal life soften your heart this morning. This morning we have the privilege of taking communion together. A time where we can examine our hearts or we can come before God. Well, really, any time we can examine our hearts and come before God. That's gift of grace that he's given us. We can come before the throne of grace. But this morning, we take communion. Take the time to confess sin that you need to confess. Take time to repent, turn from it, and run towards the Holy One of God. The bread and the cup, it represents Christ's sacrifice, body and blood shed on the cross. It's a reminder that we cannot and will not save ourselves by our own efforts. But we needed a perfect and spotless lamb to atone for our sins, to pay our debt. We can rejoice when we take communion because it reminds us of that victory over sin, death, and hell. We confess, we repent, we celebrate Christ's accomplished work. This table is not a King's Chapel table. It's for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you haven't, but today's the day. Again, confess, repent, and if you've done that, you can come to the table. You can take of those elements. If the Spirit has sprouted those gospel seeds in you and shown Christ is the way, the truth and the life. Uh, maybe this morning you, you're still like, mm, I'm not in. I don't, I don't believe what you're saying. You haven't taken that step of faith. 
I get it. It's a process. But one thing we ask with communion is that you just don't, don't take the elements this morning. Sit, meditate on the words that were spoken. Think about the, the song that is being sung. And it is my hope that you would take that step of faith. We've been presented with some difficult truths to wrap our minds around in this passage. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, what an honor it is that we get to come before the Holy One of God. That we can approach you and lay at your feet our sins, our sorrows, our burdens. And that you are faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that we would see so clearly that life is through you and you alone. That we would cling to you in the midst of everything else. Everything else that's calling to us, Lord. Help us to run to you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've bestowed upon us richly through Christ and through your word. Lord, we owe all to you because of what you did on the cross. Continue to work in our hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.